You're listening to Alive and Powerful with Pastor Scott Morrison. Alive and Powerful is the radio ministry of Foothills Calvary, a fresh and growing fellowship in Lakewood, Colorado. We invite you to come and join us as we study the Word together, Sunday mornings at 9 and 11 a.m. We meet at 12344 West Alameda Parkway in Lakewood, just a few blocks west of Union and Alameda. For more information about Foothills Calvary, please visit our website at foothillscalvary.org. That's foothillscalvary.org. We hope you are blessed by today's message. Now, here's Pastor Scott. We're going to be in Revelation 13 this morning, but we're going to pray first. Father God, I thank you for your word. I thank you that you speak to us, that you speak through your word, that you speak to us with your Holy Spirit. Father, would you uh, this morning just clear our hearts and minds of anything that's not of you, and would you open our ears and our eyes and our hearts to receive from you this morning. Um, Lord, as we get into Revelation 13 and we talk about hard things, God, would you uh, help us to see hope, and would you let us not get uh, caught up in, in things that are going on around us? And so, Lord, we just surrender this time to you. Speak to us as our prayer. In Jesus' name, amen. Revelation 1.3, we've read often, and it really is kind of that theme. Blessed is he who reads uh, and those who hear the words of the prophecy and heed the things which are written in it, for the time is near. For the fact that we are reading and studying and, and pressing into this book, the book of Revelation, it, it does bring a blessing to us. And so we can count on that. That's a promise. Revelation chapters 12, 13, and 14 really all go together, but I don't think we want to have a three-hour service. Maybe some of you do, um, but we're breaking it out. So Caleb did chapter 12, I'll do 13, and then we'll get into 14 next week. Um, Caleb did a great job walking us through a tough one in chapter 12 as we introduce some of the main characters of the book of Revelation. We have the woman representing Israel, the red dragon representing Satan, the male child, Christ, and the angel Michael. Today, we're introduced to two beasts, one rising from the sea and one rising from the earth. This is a reminder for us as we get into Revelation 13, and the title today is The Antichrist. Dun, 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 right? We hear that word, and we kind of get this picture and this image of life and, and what that looks like. But as we read and we study the book of Revelation, we have to remember who is behind the evil that is happening, and that is Satan. And even though there is evil and there's persecution, we have to remember, as I was talking about the prayer blog earlier, God has given us gifts and talents and abilities that we need to be using now in this season that we're here on this planet. God has given us provision. What are we doing with what God has given us? Are we doing anything with it? Are you being obedient in this season or are you being fearful? Are you hiding what God has given you? Do you fear God or do you fear man? Or even deeper, do you fear the devil? Really, we have hope. We have the power of the cross behind us. We don't need to have fear. Amen? We don't need to be fearful of what's going on in the world around us. And that is why it's so important for us to stay focused on God's word and on his word alone. We start in Revelation 13, verse 1, and this is John's vision of the beast from the sea. And the dragon stood on the sand of the seashore. Then I saw a beast coming up out of the sea, having ten horns and seven heads. And on his horns were ten diadems, or crowns, and on his heads were blasphemous names. 
In Revelation 12, John's vision mainly had heaven in view, but now the scene of his vision is shifting to the earth. And in his vision, he stood on the sand of the sea. Many of you in this room love the sea. You love the ocean. Yet here you are in Colorado. On Facebook, I post a picture of the mountains, of snow, of cold, of just the beauty and majesty. I was talking with 20 below. Hallelujah. Wouldn't that be awesome to be in Alaska right now? <clears throat> I think so. Anyways, I post something about that and somebody counters with a picture of the beach or the ocean. Um, in Colorado, you're not going to have much beach. The Jewish people of biblical times were not big on things of the sea or the ocean. They considered the sea wild and, and untamed, a, a frightening place. I agree. There are things in the ocean that can eat you. I'm just saying. I don't want to be there. In ancient Israel, King Solomon had a navy, but its sailors were from a different king, from a different nation. Hiram, the king of Tyre, you can read about it in 1 Kings 9. Since Israel was leery of the sea, it shows up in written symbolism as a figure of evil and of, of chaos, something that, that seemed to resist God. And even though that resistance was unsuccessful, we, we see it in the Psalms, and we see Isaiah even write about it, just to name a couple. Psalms 89, 8 and 9 says, O Lord, God of hosts, who is like you, O mighty Lord? Your faithfulness also surrounds us. You rule the swelling of the sea. When its waves rise, you still them. Isaiah 57, 20, but the wicked are like the tossing sea, for it cannot be quiet, and its waters toss up refuse and mud. So John is writing from a place identified with evil, chaos and resistance of God. A beast comes forth from the sea. In the Greek word, the translated word beast is the idea of a wild and dangerous animal. John calls him a beast, not, not a dragon, as in Revelation 12, 3. This creature is distinct from Satan and represented and seen in Revelation 12, 3 and 12, 9. The beast is distinct, yet still tied very closely to the dragon. He's not the dragon, but he's like him. Remember, the dragon had seven heads and ten horns. A creature with seven heads would be hard to kill. If one head is wounded, the remaining six would take you out. This is where our imagination is so skewed by Hollywood. We have to disconnect the visual of seven heads and ten horns. I'm a very visual person. I can see that, and it's weird. We have to disconnect that thought process. Biblically speaking, horns express strength and power. A bull with two horns is powerful. Can you imagine a beast with ten horns? So much power. Similar to the dragon in Revelation 12.3. The likeness of Satan is just one of the identifiers of the Antichrist. That word, Antichrist, it only actually shows up five times in four verses in the Bible. 1 John 2.18, 1 John 2.22, 1 John 4.3, and 2 John chapter 7. 1 John 2.18 is a great example. Children, it is the last hour, and just as you heard the Antichrist is coming, even now many Antichrists have appeared for this, we know that this, it is the last hour. John refers to an individual that has captured the imagination of believers and unbelievers alike. Um, I googled um, movies on the Antichrist, just to see. Eight and a half million results came up. Do you think it's on the thoughts of those within the world? You see, people tend to get their information 
and build their worldview on what the media says and, and what movies tell you. They grab a hold of things from, from the omen or maybe even from the Left Behind series and they run with it as doctrine and theology. Listen, we've got to guard against that. It's why it's imperative that we're in the word every day, that we're spending time in prayer, that we're seeking the presence of the Holy Spirit in our lives so we can know and discern what is out there and what God is doing. This morning, we start with understanding the title Antichrist, what it actually means. We all understand the prefix anti, the opposite of or instead of. The Antichrist is literally the opposite of Jesus. The reality is when the Antichrist appears, he is going to be a supremely evil person. One thought is, is this, as, as much good as Jesus did and as loving as Jesus was, the Antichrist will be the opposite doing deeds of evil. Jesus' character and personality was loving and attractive to all, and he brought all people in. The Antichrist is the opposite. He'll be ugly and deceptive to the core of his being. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. The Antichrist will speak only lies. The reality is, though, if we keep a focus on the opposite of Jesus too much, we too can be deceived. You see, the Antichrist is going to be more of a instead of Jesus. He's going to look wonderful. He's going to be charming, successful. He'll be the ultimate winner. He'll appear as an angel of light. In this sense, the Antichrist will be the satanic Messiah instead of the true Messiah, Jesus Christ. We read in 1 John 2.18 that there will be an Antichrist and many Antichrists. You see, there's a spirit of Antichrist within our world, and one day it'll find its fulfillment in the Antichrist that will rise up, a leader of men and women that will rebel against God. The world is looking for and wanting a man who will meet them at the point of their need and then being left to do their wickedness and left to the depraved minds which they have. They'll, they'll blindly follow with whatever he says and whatever he does. And there are biblical and historical previews of this leader, the, the Antichrist with the little a, what did it look like? The Bible gives the Antichrist many other names or titles. In the book of Daniel, he's known as the little horn, the king of fierce countenance, the prince that shall come, the willful king. In John 5, the one who comes in his own name, who Israel will receive as Messiah, the son of perdition or destruction, the man of sin, or the lawless one of 2 Thessalonians 2.3. On his horns were ten diadems, or crowns. This is something different about the beast compared to the dragon, who had seven diadems on his head. Seven crowns of the dragon expressed his strength and power, because seven is a number associated with strength and completeness. The ten crowns of the beast expressed the rule over a group of ten nations. Now, as we go through this, as we've done the study in Revelation, we've stayed focused on the word, It'd be very easy for me to take a bunch of different rabbit trails on this, wouldn't it? The 10 nations, oh, who are the 10 nations? How many do we have now? Shouldn't we look at that? No, we're gonna stay focused on God's word. 
Most commentators think that the ten horns are distributed among the seven heads, but David Hawking sees the ten horns upon the heads. The figure of ten horns also associates with the beast in Daniel 7, which represents a final world empire of the Antichrist, which the Messiah will ultimately conquer. In Daniel 7, 7, after I kept looking at the night visions, behold, a fourth beast, dreadful and terrifying, extremely strong, it had iron, large iron teeth, he devoured and crushed and trampled the remainder with his feet. And it was different from the beasts that were before it, and it had ten horns. In Daniel's vision, the ten horns specifically represented ten kingdoms. Ten kingdoms that the final world dictator has authority over. In John's vision, the ten diadems or crowns, the ten horns, emphasize that idea. The vision in Daniel 7 and Daniel 2 connect the governments represented by the ten crowns with the ancient Roman Empire. In those visions, Daniel saw three successive world empires, each succeeded by a fourth, which in context of the vision is plainly the Roman Empire. In the days of that fourth empire, the Messiah will come and destroy all earthly rule, and he will reign, Jesus will reign over the earth. And since we don't see the reign of Jesus on the earth in the way Daniel prophesied, we can see that the Roman Empire will resume in some way expressed by this collection of ten crowns. The seven heads of the beast each advertise blasphemy against God. It speaks of more than the beast's message. It speaks of his character. He's a blasphemer who speaks against God. In verse 2, it says, And the beast which I saw was like a leopard, and his feet were like those of a bear, and his mouth like the mouth of a lion. And the dragon gave him his power and his throne and great authority. Leopards and bears and lions, oh my. <clears throat> Leopard, a bear, and a lion. In this vision, God uses images from Daniel's vision in Daniel 7 to communicate the identity and the nature of the beast. Daniel 7 uses four animals or beasts to describe the course of human government from Daniel's time until the ultimate reign of Jesus on the earth. The first three animals are a lion, that's the picture of the Babylonian empire, a bear, the picture of the Medo-Persian empire, a leopard, there's a picture of the Greek empire. The fourth animal is dreadful indescribable, an indescribable beast which shared the most terrifying characteristics of the, other four, of the other beasts. It represents a final world empire under the leadership of a satanic dictator. John presents this beast as an extension of the fourth beast of Daniel 7, connecting the empire with the characteristics of the great empires of the past. That final empire will have cat-like vigilance of a leopard, the slow and crushing power of a bear, and the authority of a ferocious lion. And since the beast of Daniel 7 represents empires more than specific men, some commentators have thought that the beast of Revelation 13 is not a person, but a government, or a society, or, or cultural system. Many believe the beast is a broad picture of a totalitarian government, especially the, the states of the 20th century. Mounts writes, the beast has always been and always will be a final intensified manifestation of the defecation of secular authority. However, others, including myself, see the beast as a person, specifically the Antichrist, the final satanic dictator, the one who leads the rebellion against God. 
Others, like teacher and commentator David Hawking, combine the approaches and say that, that beast is a modern world totalitarian government, but one head has ten horns, and specifically the Antichrist, the leader of this beast of a final satanic dictatorship. But within any empire, especially brief empires, the government is almost always identified with the ruler. You think about the 1930s and 1940s in Germany, right? Nazi Germany. Who do we think of when we think of Nazi Germany? Hitler. The ruler, right? The government is always identified with the ruler. So all the indications of Revelation 13 are that the beast is a man, though he's closely identified with the world-dominating government. An image is set up of the beast, and the whole world is commanded to worship This makes far more sense that the beast is a man rather than an empire or government. And through history, men have often bowed to an image of a political ruler. I mean, we still have kings within our world. People pay homage to the king. So I'd agree then that the beast is indeed a man. He has a proper name. He expresses a certain number, and that number is that of a man. The beast is finally damned. He goes to perdition the way of destruction. He goes into the lake of fire where he continues to exist and suffer, passing from the earthly realm to the spirit realm. And a system of government could not do that. Remember earlier, the Antichrist is also called the son of perdition, as was Judas in John 17. Judas was a man, not a system or a government, so it follows the Antichrist will be a man. This world leader is really empowered and supported by Satan himself. Through this man, Satan will express his own desire and authority. In this, the beast takes the offer that Jesus refused as the devil tempted him. Remember when Jesus was in the desert and all those temptations came. You can have this, you can do this, it's all yours. Well, this beast will take it all. The beast is not just an ordinary man. He's called the beast that ascends out of the bottomless pit. Ordinary men don't come from there. The commentator says that one who hails from a place that must, he must either be a dead man brought up again from the dead or some evil spirit which takes possession of a living man. In either case, the beast as a person is an extraordinary and supernatural being. It may be that Satan himself takes possession of the man and this is what makes him exceptional and extraordinary. This is the case with Judas who was possessed by Satan in John chapter 13. Look at verse 3. I saw one of the heads as it had been slain, and its fatal wound was healed. And the whole earth was amazed and followed after the beast. This is a head wound, a a mortal wound, not not a superficial injury. Perhaps the result of God's judgment against the beast, and his fatal wound was healed. The recovery of the, the beast increases his fame and his authority. The whole earth was amazed and followed after the beast. Two more times in our passage, the healed wound is mentioned in connection of worship and devotion to the beast. Again, this is a man, not a government system, that is mortally wounded and brought back to life. This man will lead a revived Roman Empire, and his personality will dominate it. This is truly an antichrist, who even imitates Jesus in his death and resurrection. The world will believe this. And it will add tremendously to his fame and to his power, his ability to control. 
Verse four, they worshiped the dragon because he gave his authority to the beast. They worshiped the beast saying, who is like the beast that is able to, who is able to wage war with him? As people worship this beast and bow down before his government, it is most likely that they don't know that they're actually bowing down to Satan himself. But it is the worship of Satan nonetheless. When we think of Satan worship, we really don't think about it close to home. We think about, you know, it happens within our world. But the reality is Satan worship happens right here in Colorado. I would say right here even in Lakewood, Colorado, by some folks that I've talked to. Satan worship is on the increase. It becomes more and more popular each year. But still, it is just a tiny fraction of people who openly worship Satan. Just a fraction. The only reason is because most people expect Satan to come in and appear with horror and destruction because that's what we see in the movies, right? We see the devil come in and just blow things up. Well, that's wrong for Satan himself transforms himself into an angel of light. 2 Corinthians 11, 14 through 15, no wonder for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. Therefore, it is not surprising if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness whose end will be according to their deeds. Again, it's just a good reminder for us that we need to stay on point, praying, being in the word, filled with the Holy Spirit, repeating myself, aren't I? How important is it it's very important. It's, it's so we can discern what God is doing. We can discern if something is coming from the Lord or if it's coming from Satan himself. The world will be amazed at the power of the beast and will believe he's so mighty that he cannot be conquered. For a time, the beast will look like a tremendous winner that when he blasphemes Jesus and he persecutes God's people, they'll appear to be complete losers just for a short time. The worship, they worship the beast and the dragon behind the beast simply because the beast's might. They'll worship simply because of his brute force. They're worshiping out of fear. Verses five and six, and given to him a mouth speaking arrogant words, blasphemies and authorities to act for 42 months was given to them. He opened his mouth and blasphemies against God to blaspheme his name, his tabernacle that is, and those who dwell in heaven blasphemer. And that might be a more accurate title than Antichrist for this end times dictator. The beast is a man who speaks against God and against everything he stands for. Isn't that spirit alive today in our world? People who speak continually against God and everything he stands for. You can believe whatever you want to believe unless you say you believe in Jesus Christ. Then we hear it, don't we? Some Roman emperors blasphemed God this way, but they didn't fulfill these prophecies. The, the beast continues without restraint by God for a period of 42 months, the familiar three and a half years, the duration of period. This shows that the beast has full reign for the first half of the final seven years, what we know as the tribulation. And during the whole time, he is still under God's authority. All this stuff is happening. God's allowing him to do it, but God is still in control. That's hard for us sometimes, isn't it? God's in control, though. He has his hand and his eye on this. Why does the beast blaspheme those who dwell in heaven? This possibly means that he speaks against those who were taken in the rapture. He, they're out of his reach, so he's mad because he couldn't get at them, couldn't get at us. 
So instead, he makes war against the saints who are left on the earth. Verses 7 and 8 of Revelation 13. It was also given to him to make war with the saints and to overcome them. And authority over every tribe and every people and tongue and nation was given to him. All who dwell on the earth will worship him. Everyone whose name has not been written in the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb who has been slain. In Revelation 12, it described the broad phenomena of satanic persecution during the tribulation period. Here, the main instrument of that persecution is revealed. The government of the beast will persecute and kill those who do not bow and worship the beast. Those were the movies I grew up with, terrified as a kid about the end times. So the, the 70s and the early 80s, we saw all those movies on the end times, and I still remember the guillotine and the basket. As a kid, that's a visual you don't forget. Let's put those movies away. Overcome does not mean the beast can overcome the faith of the saints, but he can destroy their physical lives and by all appearance defeat the cause of God's people on the earth. These are martyrs. These are those that will be honored in heaven. We read about them a few weeks ago. Who are the saints who overcome by the beast? Various views of the timing of the rapture determines those who are the persecuted ones. Those who believe in a pre-tribulation rapture believe that these saints are God's people who came to Christ after the church had been raptured. That's what I believe that is. There are also those, though, who believe in post-tribulation rapture. They believe that these saints are God's people who are on earth before the final rapture, including what we think of today as the church. This final dictator will demand and receive worship from the whole earth. But those who worship him pay the price. Those whose names have not been written in the book of life. Now it's interesting as we've been going through this, and I keep, I make sure I don't go on too many rabbit trails here, but as we look about control of the earth and getting people to worship or getting people to do things, we kind of saw that happen, didn't we, with COVID? That great experiment we call covid where the whole world went under control of one thing, how easily can that happen? How easy can communication happen around the world? It's so easy for that, for us to see that. How will all who dwell on the earth worship him? Probably be the pattern of worship demanded by the Roman emperors in the days of the early church. There were times in the early church when all the residents in the empire were required to burn a pinch of incense before a statue of Caesar and say, Caesar is Lord. They would then get a certificate. Remember, we talked about this a little bit ago. Christians refused to do this, and they were persecuted because of it. The Romans saw it as an act of political allegiance, but the Christians saw it rightly as an act of religious worship. After the great and terrible totalitarian rulers of the 20th century, Lenin and Stalin, Hitler, Mao, it isn't hard to imagine a dominating dominating leader demanding such a declaration of allegiance tantamount to worship. And we saw how easily everybody's focus came on one thing. The book of life contains the names of all God's redeemed. The idea is that worshiping the beast and having your name in the book of life are mutually exclusive. You cannot do both. Your name is either in the book of life or you're worshiping Satan. You can't do both.
Hi, this is Pastor Scott from Foothills Calvary. I hope the Lord is speaking to you through today's message. I wanted to just take a second and invite you to join us for worship services at Foothills Calvary. We meet Sundays at 9 and 11 a.m. at 12344 West Alameda Parkway in Lakewood, just a few blocks west of Union and Alameda. If you'd like more information on Foothills Calvary, please visit our website at foothillscalvary.org. Now let's get back to our study. I pray that the Lord will continue to speak to you by his Holy Spirit. The Lamb who had been slain, a deeply meaningful title for Jesus. It reminds us that God's plan for redemption was set in place before he created the beings who would be redeemed. Is God surprised by the fall of Adam in the garden? No. Is he surprised by any of the evidence of the fallen nature of man now? No. God knew it was going to happen. God isn't making things up as he goes. Oh, I didn't see that. I didn't know that was going to happen. He's had a plan from the beginning, from the foundation of the world. He's had a plan. God the Son had a relationship of love and fellowship with God the Father before the foundation of the world. The work of Jesus was ordained before the foundation of the world. The kingdom of heaven was prepared for the redeemed to come home before the foundation of the world. You see, God has a plan in all of this and has had it from the beginning. That's our hope. That's what we can rest on and count on. In verses nine and 10, it says, if anyone has an ear, let him hear. If anyone has destined for captivity, to captivity he goes. If anyone kills with the sword, by the sword he must be killed. And here's the perseverance and faith of the saints. To, this introduces a solemn word of warning, meaning uh, to capture the attention of all who hear. It means that the functions and duties of the beast are not without guilt. Though these things are prophesied and part of God's predetermined plan, it does not lessen in the slightest way man's personal responsibility. Remember, you and I, as the Holy Spirit speaks to us, as, as God's word penetrates our hearts and our minds, and, and God tells us what we're supposed to be doing, you realize we're responsible for it. It's on us then. If we choose not to be obedient, that's on us. If we choose to be obedient, oh, there's where the blessing comes. <clears throat> if you work for the beast and you lead others into captivity, you certainly shall go into captivity yourself. God will measure unto you what you have measured unto others. Sounds like a familiar parable. You reap what you sow, right? If we're sowing into the spirit and we're sowing into God's word, we're gonna reap from that. If we're sowing into the flesh, we're gonna reap from that. And the cost is heavy. This may have a secondary or additional meaning as well. There's no hope in fighting against the Antichrist. You see, the only way of victory is steadfast faith and endurance in Jesus. Though the saints are viciously attacked by the Antichrist and his followers, the saints of God must keep steadfast in faith in the ultimate justice of God. You see, God's got this. God will reward the persecutors with persecution. God will reward you for your faithfulness and your steadfastness. 
He'll reward you. Hold steady. So that's the beast rising from the sea. Now we get the second beast rising from the land. Verse 11, then I saw another beast coming up out of the earth. He had two horns like a lamb and he spoke as a dragon. The creature represents someone like the beast rising from the sea because the same word beast is used to describe them both. At the same time, this beast is different. It's different in origin because one comes out of the sea and the other out of the earth. They're, they're different in rank because the second is subordinate to the first and causes the earth to worship the first beast. They're different in appearance because the second has a mild lamb-like appearance. He had two horns like a lamb. Two horns express the fact that the beast has authority in two realms, religious and political authority. Spoke like a dragon. Despite the lamb-like appearance, the message of the second beast is the same as the message of the first. The second beast is called the false prophet. Someone distinct from the first beast, the Antichrist and the dragon, Satan. With the dragon and the beast rising from the sea and the beast rising from the land, we have this unholy trinity. The dragon is anti-father. The beast of the sea is anti-Christ. The beast rising from the land is anti-Holy Spirit. In that, we then get the job description for the second beast in verses 12 through 15. He exercises all authority of the first beast in his presence and he makes the earth and all those who dwell in it to worship the first beast whose fatal wound was healed. He performs great signs and even makes fire come down from heaven to the earth in the presence of men. He deceives those who dwell on the earth because of the signs which he had given him to perform in the presence of the beast, telling those who dwell on the earth to make an image of the beast who had the wound of the sword and had come to life. And it was given to him breath in the image of the beast, so the image of the beast would even speak and cause as many as do not worship the image of the beast to be killed. So this beast rising from the earth is essentially a satanic prophet who leads the world to worship the beast and the dragon. It might seem fantastic to some that the world would be led into worship of man and, and of the devil, but by nature, men have this undeniable religious impulse. They believe in undeniable rebellion against God as well. If you want to worship God, the one true God, and you want to worship him and engage in that, that this, that's what we do. That's awesome. But it's rejected by the world. The world doesn't want to do that. They don't want to surrender to that. They live in that rebellion. What men want most is not to eliminate religion, but they want their own religion. That's why you have the coexist bumper stickers. It's not going to work. It's not going to work. They say that they want the kingdom, but they don't want God in it. Every man and woman has a void in them. They have a desire to worship something or someone, and in this case, anything other than God. The beast rising from the sea has the signs and wonders to back up his false teaching. A specific miracle of false prophets is described, making fire come down from heaven in the sight of men. It's important that John highlights this miracle. In the eyes of the deceived world, it answers the miracles of the two witnesses who ministered during this period and were persecuted by the Antichrist and the false prophet. We saw that in Revelation 11. To the deceived world, it puts a false prophet in the class of Elijah. We could imagine that false prophet coming out and saying, let the true God answer with fire and then performing his deceptive wonder. 
One commentator says there's a supernatural power which is against God and truth, as well as one for God and truth. Uh, A miracle simply as a work of wonder is not necessarily of God. There has always been a devilish supernaturalism in the world running alongside the supernaturalism of divine grace and salvation. You see, in the days of Exodus, Aaron performed miracles up to a point and it was matched miracle for miracle by the magicians of Egypt. Yes, that could even happen in our church and I've seen it happen in other churches where God is truly doing something. There's a miracle happening and then somebody tries to fabricate it on this side. That's where we've gotta be discerning. In Deuteronomy, God assumes there will be supernatural works on behalf of false prophets and idols and he warns his people to judge a worker of miracles by their message not by their works. Jesus said in Matthew 24, in the end times, false prophets would emerge and show great signs and wonders to deceive. And Paul said that the Antichrist will come with all powers, signs, and lying wonders in 2 Thessalonians 2.9. Knowing all of this, the emphasis on signs and wonders among even some so-called Christians is frightening. Some Christians say or think you can really know where God is and where he, his, his power is by the signs and the wonders. We have to listen here. Thinking this way is to leave ourselves wide open to deception. I believe in the power and presence of the Holy Spirit. I have seen amazing miracles and I could tell you and testify of them. I've seen them right in front of my eyes. But there's also a deception that happens and people that take things into their own hands and try to stir up signs and wonders. Years ago, there was a large multi-denominational conference of people who thought this way, and their slogan, it was on a huge banner over the conference platform, it read, unity under signs and wonders. That's all they were looking for. Is that any different than the, the people who were following Jesus and the Pharisees? Show us another trick. I mean, show us another sign that you're the Messiah. That's a unity that Satan and the Antichrist and the false prophet, they could all join into. Signs and wonders are indeed going to be present among Christians. But the real marks of God's work are love and truth and genuine salvation. Jesus said we would do greater things than he did. What is greater than raising the dead? (laughs) What is greater than, than seeing the blind healed? What is greater? Salvation. The salvation of a person's soul is greater because that's the main focus. That's the main point. Not a physical miracle. It's what happens inside of a person. Beware of false prophets and workers of miracles. They're on the rise today. We heard many of them beat their chest and falsely claim who the president would be at our last election. But let me repeat. Signs and wonders will indeed be present among Christians, especially in the end times. But the real mark of God's work is the love and truth and genuine salvation that happens. And everything done must point to Jesus. When the Holy Spirit moves and God is doing something, it doesn't point to a man. It points to God. It it puts a spotlight on Jesus, not on the person not naming and claiming, commanding and demanding of God, not stating, I did this, but look what God did. So we have to remember that we simply seek his face with all of our heart. And when we do that, 
his hands follow. He meets you at your point of need. He knows what you need. He knows where you're at. And he will give you what you need each and every day. He will move according to his will for his glory, not yours. When man is involved without God's leading, it causes much, much damage. Okay, before we end up in another lesson, we'll come back to Revelation. Verse 15. It was given to him to give breath to the image of the beast, so the image of the beast would even speak and cause as many as do not worship the image of the beast to be killed. The beast rising from the earth will use a deceptive animated image as a focus point of worship of the beast. And it seems strange to us to have a whole world give this kind of worship to the image of a man. But the personality cults of totalitarian governments in the 20th century are a great example of this kind of worship. All we have to do is remember uh, countries like the Soviet Union or communist China and their omnipresent pictures of Stalin or Mao that are still hanging on the walls of, of their buildings and of their houses, of their homes. There's a pattern that will ultimately be fulfilled by the Antichrist. The image of the beast is animated in some way. It has breath and can speak and whatever that looks like. We're in the world of technology we are in, we the AI that we have, we can create life. Can we? Whether the image is animated supernaturally or technologically, the result will be impressive. It will become an idol that is worshipped. The psalmist in Psalm 135 mocked idol worshipers because the idols of the heathen are silver and gold and work of men's hands. They have mouths, but they cannot speak. They have eyes, cannot see. The image of the Antichrist will be different. It'll be a different kind of idol because the image of the beast will speak and will cause as many would not worship the image of the beast to be killed. That's kind of terrifying. The idolatrous image is what Jesus, Daniel, and Paul spoke of as the abomination of desolation. It's an idolatrous image set up in a holy place of a rebuilt temple, which they're working at underground now to get that ready, to rebuild that temple. It's an abomination in the sense of being supreme idolatry. It's a desolation in the sense that it'll bring judgment described by the seals, the trumpets, and the bulls. It marks the halfway point of the final seven years of man's rule on this planet. The Antichrist power ends just about as soon as it peaks. And then there's an economic strategy, verses 16 and 17. It causes all the small and the great, the rich and the poor, the free man and the slave to be given a mark on their right hand and their forehead. And he provides that no one will be able to buy or sell except the one who has the mark, either the name of the beast or the number of his name. This is a piece right here that brings some contention and some arguments among Christians, isn't it? What is the mark? What is, well, I got the vaccine, I have the mark. No, you don't. No, you don't. Sorry. Under the government of the beast and his associate, all will be given a mark. Without the mark, one will not be able to participate in the economy. No one may buy or sell except those who have the mark. Since the ancient Greek word for mark isn't generally applied to people, some have taken this as a symbolic mark. But a literal mark needed to buy or sell is certainly conceivable and practical. The technology to give people a mark enables them to buy and sell in the electronic economy is available today, isn't it? Anybody have a little credit card with a chip in it? You just kind of lay it on top of the pad. Put that right inside the back of your hand. Let me scan my forehead. Beep. Um, 
right? So the technology is there for those types of things. But again, we can't get, don't go too crazy on those things because we think we know what it is. Do you know what it is? I don't know what it is. That mark has to do with what's within our heart. What is it going to look like? There are many different ways it could happen. Many programs that are proposed and testing that's constantly happening and increasing. Some people are talking about Bitcoin. Oh, it's electronic. It's not going to be Bitcoin. It's going to be bigger than that. It's already being used in Europe, but I won't go down that path. The mark is one of the heart. The mark is truly of who you serve and who you surrender to. Satan's not a creative being. He's a poser. All he can do is imitate God. We're not surprised to find that, that this is too a, a satanic parody. It's something that God will do. It, it imitates God's mark upon his people in Revelation 7, 3 through 4. God knew who his people were. They're marked. He sees them. The number of his name. A common concept in the ancient world, in Greek and Hebrew as well, letters were assigned in a numerical value, A equaling 1, B, 2, etc. The example was found in, in graffiti in the ruins of Pompeii, and, and it reads this, I love her whose name, whose number is 545. <laughs> that was found in their graffiti. Here's the thing that we have to stay and pay attention to. Don't get caught up in numerology and false prophets trying to tell you how it will be. Our eyes must stay on God. No date setting. We may know the season and feel that it's soon, but we've got to stay focused on, on why God has you here in this season. And there is a form of Christian, I say that loosely, numerology, even those who are tied to astrology. Guys, we've got to stay away from that. It's witchcraft. It's sorcery. We're commanded in God's word to stay away from those things. Back in the 80s, there was a book. Unfortunately, I had it. I had all the end-time prophecy books. That's why it took me so long for me to, to heal and feel like we could teach the book of Revelation because I read all those books, which I threw them away. There's a book called Hidden Prophecies in the Psalms. Anybody ever seen that one? It's numerology. It's not biblical. That was one of the first ones that hit the trash can. I was telling Caleb the other day, I wish I would have kept them because I'd have used them as references. But it was trash. It was a manipulation of God's word. Guys, we must be aware of that. Even with some pastors who were coming out and really teaching on the end times, be aware of where they're getting the information from and how they're coming to their conclusions. Hold those things loosely. Hold on to God's word thoroughly and heartily. Amen? Verse 18, here is wisdom. Let him who has understanding calculate the number of the beast for the number of that man is that of a man and his number is 666. Dun, 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 666. We all kind of freak out, right? Because we've seen those movies. Does this tell us who the beast is by figuring out the numerical value and the name, seeing it and adds up to 666? I'm gonna tell you exactly who the, no, I'm not. There's no way to, to know who the Antichrist is. Using this method, many candidates for Antichrist have been suggested. The Pope or somebody within the papacy, uh, John Knox, Martin Luther, Napoleon, Hitler, Mussolini, Stalin, Obama, Trump, <clears throat> and so forth. But the schemes for unlocking the number of the beast are confusing as they are endless. Poole says it this way. 
That is 12, the square root of 144 is God's number, so 25 is the square root of the Antichrist number, 666. Um, By this mathematical expression, we're taught that the Antichrist should be a political body that should as much affect number 25 as God seems to have his church affected as the number 12. Did you catch that? Doesn't make sense, does it? That's the point. Trapp says the year of Rome's ruin is by some held to be 1666. It is plain. Satan shall be tied up a thousand years. 666 is the number of the beast. Antichrist shall long, so long reign. These two together make that, well, it's just a number. There's no way to know. It's the number of the man. One persistent opinion, especially in the early church, is that the number identified as the Antichrist was Caesar Nero. But to make the name Caesar narrow fit, well, we must take a variant of spelling. You take the Greek and the Latin transliterated into Hebrew characters and the letters of Jesus in Greek add up to 888 and 666 is a satanic counterpart of the name of Jesus. It goes on and on and on. See, we can't get caught in those rabbit trails. God has a purpose and a plan We know seven is the number of completion and totality. Six doesn't quite make it. Hollywood and modern interpretations of the idea of the Antichrist are full of the idea of some demon child marked by obvious evil from birth, such as the Omen movies. But the Antichrist may be someone whose evil is only seen after the rise to power. And see how easy it is to go down a path that doesn't need to be gone down, right? As you're looking at the end times, are you looking at eschatology? Don't run down all those trails. It's okay to kind of know what people think and believe and why, but stay focused on Christ. Don't get lost. Another thing is that Christians need not fear the number 666 in a superstitious way. It'd be the same with the number 13. We're in Revelation 13. It's a good thing we're not teaching on Friday 13th, right? They're just numbers. It's interesting to see how the world attaches things to this number, even things with um, 666 brand barbecue sauce. Bet you that's hot as you know where. And there's even a 666 cough syrup. Really? I don't want that in my throat. The Antichrist and false prophets are imitations. Imitations work precisely because they are similar to. If they were obviously different, it'd be easy to tell the difference. So we must be aware and be familiar with the genuine Messiah, Jesus Christ. You want to make sure you're not deceived? Know who Jesus is. Build that relationship with him on a daily basis. Instead of obsessing with fear and interest about the imitation, the Antichrist, how much more appropriate is it for us as Christians to be interested in the genuine deal, Jesus Christ? Where then should we be or what should we be doing, knowing what we know? Jesus' own words, and and we could do a whole other lesson here, the the parable of the servants and the talents. You can read about it in Matthew 25, 14 through 30. Read it later. But each one is given responsibility until the master returned. You see, you and I have responsibility. You and I have work to do. It's good to see and know what's happening around us, to have that understanding, but we've got to stay focused on what God is telling each of us to do in this season. Do you believe that the Lord's return is soon? I do. What does that mean? I don't know. 
It'd be nice if it was now or soon. What's going to happen is it's going to happen quickly. It's going to happen quickly. If you believe his return is soon, then pray that God will give you the opportunity to share the hope that you have with your family. Anybody have family members who aren't saved? God, help us reach them. God, help us reach them. How about your friends? Your friends that are unsaved? I do. How about coworkers? All of them. <laughs> All of them. My coworkers are saved, just for the record. That was just repeating. I just repeated what Heather said. <laughs> My coworkers are saved. We're good there. How about strangers that God brings across your path? Every time I take Pam to the hospital, there's an opportunity to share hope. Every time you go to the gas station, there's opportunity to share hope. Every time you go to the grocery store, opportunity to share hope. Start praying. Okay, Lord, I feel like your return is soon. Would you use me in this season so I can bring hope to others? It was that one writing I saw in Socks Place downtown, a homeless drop-in center for teenagers where it said, I'd rather be at the gates of hell pulling people out than out in the suburbs listening to the church bells. May we have that passion that we want people to know the hope that we have. We want to see them saved. We want to see them spend eternity in heaven, not eternity in hell. Amen? We have hope. (laughs) We have hope. Let's share it. Let's pray. Father, we thank you. We love you. And we thank you that you love us. God, there are times that we truly struggle understanding your word. And Lord, we just, we just covered a big chunk of scripture. It's hard. It's hard for us to understand. So would you send your Holy Spirit to, to bring clarity that we can apply the hope that we have knowing what is coming in the future, knowing that, that we have something we can give others to, to bring peace and to bring them into your kingdom. Even this morning, how exciting to read that, that you are in control, that you have a plan. So Lord, we ask that you would help us do what we are called to do in this season, in this time that we are were, we were here on this planet. God, you've given each of us a job, a calling. We have talents and gifts and abilities that need to be used. Be used to bring you glory, to be used to share hope with others. God, help us be obedient in that call. Strengthen us mentally, physically, spiritually, and emotionally. God, it doesn't matter what we're going through right now. You've given each of us hope. So Lord, would you strengthen us to be able to share that hope? Would you help us keep proper perspective on a daily basis? Help us as we become people of prayer, that we become people of the book, Lord, to, to truly focus on our relationship with you and to grow in it on a daily basis. Help us not lose perspective. As we're gathered this morning, I would ask you the same thing that I ask every Sunday. Are you confident that you're going to spend eternity in heaven? Is your name written in the Lamb's book of life? Many people, so we've been reading through Revelation, we see that they, they see in, uh, these great things that happen, but they still refuse to believe. There's many people right now that refuse to believe in Christ because they don't want to give up control of their lives. 
I would challenge you and exhort you to, to take a step of faith and to give up that control. To allow God to guide and direct you. To step out into faith in Christ so you don't experience any of what we've just read. That you don't experience that without God. We all know life is hard. Things aren't going to just automatically change once you surrender your life to the Lord, but you're going to have a peace and a strength like you've never had before. Will you not surrender everything to him this morning and see that God truly is good and he has a great plan for your life? Romans 10, 9 and 10 says, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with a heart a person believes, resulting in righteousness, and with the mouth he confesses, resulting in salvation. You can do that this morning, whether you're in this room or you're listening online. You can be sure that heaven is your destination by simply asking God for forgiveness and confessing that Jesus is Lord. So with every head bowed and every eye closed, I'm going to ask you just to have a little simple conversation with God. Your heart to his heart. It's very simple. Something like this. Dear God, please help. I can't live like this any longer. I confess that Jesus is Lord. And I believe that you raised him from the dead. Because of that, I can repent. I turn from my sins. Forgive me. Help me as I'm headed in a new direction starting today. Help me give a reason for the hope that I have. Empower me with your Holy Spirit. And help me to, to share hope with others. In Jesus' name. If you prayed that prayer in this room, I'd love to chat with you and pray with you. If you prayed it online, shoot me an email, scott at foothillscalvary.org, and I'll get back to you as well. This has been Alive and Powerful with Pastor Scott Morrison. We hope you are blessed by today's message. Alive and Powerful is the radio ministry of Foothills Calvary, a fresh and growing fellowship in Lakewood, Colorado. We invite you to come and join us as we study the Word together, Sunday mornings at 9 and 11 a.m. We meet at 12344 West Alameda Parkway in Lakewood, just a few blocks west of Union and Alameda. For more information about Foothills Calvary, please visit our website, at foothillscalvary.org. That's foothillscalvary.org.